Key Aero, your aviation destination. Historic Aviation. Hello and uh, welcome to the Fly Pass podcast. For this episode, we're joined by Luke Slaney Hewitt, researcher for FX under the Hornby Hobbies Limited umbrella. Hi, Luke. How are you doing? Hi, good. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Oh, well, thanks for joining us. Yeah, I mean, so there's a couple of reasons I want to talk to you today, but I suppose we'll start off with you know what you do and how you got into it. I mean, for me, I always think you know Airfix. You know, growing up as a kid, you've got humble paints, you've got glue, you, you've got all the stuff that sort of brings back memories for so many of us. And obviously, you're part of a wider umbrella. So maybe talk a little bit about the the company you work for. Airfix, as you were saying, we've all sort of grown up with it, and I'm no different. I'm a local boy to Margate, so I grew up. I'm quite a young guy, so. I grew up 10, 15 years ago in the local area attending making paints at the actual factory. So it was a bit, you have to pinch yourself and realise, oh, I'm actually working here now. You know, I'm used to building the models and now I'm researching them and putting them together. Obviously, Airfix is quite a historic brand. It's not always been based in Margate. It's more of a recent thing since our acquisition by Hornby Hobbies. And it's a brand that's moved on in recent years. We're working towards quality models, whereas before in the 60s and 70s, you could say they were more toys as the hobbies matured. So is the company, and we've had to sort of change how we do things and aim for the enthusiast market and really cater for them. So, you know, the company's constantly evolving to deliver better and better products. And yeah, so we're based in Margate, along with Hornby Hobbies and all the other brands under that umbrella. So Scale Electric, Humbrow, Corgi, Hornby themselves, obviously, if you're into trains. I'll be honest, I'm an aviation fan through and through. Trains don't appeal to me, but ask the researcher down at Hornby and they'll say they don't like planes. So <laughs> there we are. So you were saying then, like myself, like growing up, Airfix was seen like a, it was a kid's thing, you know, it was something mm. you did as a child. But has that sort of changed fundamentally? Because I see more and more people building models as they get you know, later on yeah. in life. Yeah. So uh, obviously an Airfix kit is almost synonymous with plastic modelling. You might call something an Airfix kit. It's not made by Airfix. It's just to say it's a plastic modeling kit. So in that respect, Airfix really does appeal towards starter modelers as well as enthusiasts. So as I was sort of alluding to, as the hobbies matured, people that grew up in the 60s and 70s have kept on modeling and they demand more and more and more in terms of quality, accuracy and sort of the general offering that we provide. But what we're really keen to do is appeal to the younger market because if we don't get teenagers into the hobby and kids into the hobby it will die out and we're very aware that there needs to be a constant progression you need to be able to work your way up and you know today in the world of social media it can be quite disheartening for kids to see the expert modelers that have been doing it for 50 years posting a build that they go wow I'm gonna do that and they start out and realize that it's really quite hard and and, you know you can quickly lose enthusiasm because you go I can't do what they can do but without realising they've got 50 years of experience. So, you know, we're really keen to cater towards that younger market, make it easier for them to get into the hobby. So, you know, the demographic itself, you know, there's the stereotype that it's it's older men generally that build models. That can't be the case because, as I say, we need to allow people into the hobby and continue with that hobby so that you've got a wide demographic because otherwise, yeah, as I say, the hobby will die out if we don't get people into it. I know exactly what you mean. So I remember being a kid and going into a model shop and seeing like a model that someone had made professionally and thinking, oh my God, like, how do you even get to that sort of standard? Yeah. Yeah. But as you say, it's aspirational and inspirational, isn't it, when you see stuff like that? 
I mean, exactly. Do you think like your your social presence, like your Instagram feed, like that, is that like inspiring a new generation of model makers? Definitely, it plays a really important part, and we try and showcase multiple builds from the professional that does it as potentially their day job through to kids doing it for the first time and really trying to show you don't have to get it right on the first time it's all about the pleasure of building a model it's not about the end products as such eventually you'll get there but as everyone says practice makes perfect you've really got to show the kids that you're not going to be the best model in the world straight away so having a great social media presence is really important for showing that obviously kids have younger age are seeing that sort of content and we've got to be conscious of who we're marketing to and creating that sort of varied appeal. So your job title, so you're a researcher, so tell Mm. us a little bit about that. I mean, what does that involve? A lot of research, as you you might understand, a lot of reading books and a lot of looking on the internet. So essentially, my job is researching the new products that we're going to release, um, finding suitable topics that we can design and release eventually. And sort of looking into where we're aiming products as well and having that in mind when I'm doing it. So, you know, new products, when it comes to picking new products, we've got to look at various different aspects. And that's where I come in. So I'll look at, has another model manufacturer created a model that's sort of unbeatable? If so, stay away. Is it an interesting subject? So as I was talking about the hobby maturing, there's certain subjects, so Spitfires, Hurricanes, Lancasters, that everyone knows. And the aircraft in consciousness at the moment are model kits that were made in the 60s and 70s. So what you might call an obscure type now is potentially because that subject wasn't covered in the 60s and 70s and it slipped away. You know, there's no sort of idea of what it was. Whereas if it was built by a kid, you're always going to remember that. So I have to look into other models. Is it interesting? commercially is it viable so i'm always sort of thinking oh that would be really cool to do and there's one that comes to mind straight away everyone quests a supermarine scimitar but you've got to be commercially minded and realize that you've got to get multiple releases out of this tooling which is you know the mold that we create and there's some aircraft that it just doesn't suit so you get one release out of it and you'd never be able to release it again in any other guise really you wouldn't be able to add parts or add value to it because it was so limited so you've constantly got to be thinking about that and you know i'm constantly monitoring forums and talking to people and trying to get an idea of what people want from a model what model they want and you know where we can improve so i've got quite a varied job of researching actual history of aircraft researching the commercial aspect as well and then making sure the designers get it right which we don't always do through our own admission you know it's a hard thing to do we don't have access to unlimited information. And as you can imagine, we often release a model thinking we've done our best. And then someone comes out of the woodwork and says, well, I've got a photo that proves you wrong on that bit. And you just have to roll with the punches and try and improve, learn from it. And hopefully one day we'll become the perfect model makers. Who knows? <laughs> it sounds like your target audience is exactly the same as Flypass. You get one detailed, ever so slightly incorrect, and they know. That's yep. the thing, isn't it? Yeah, it's... A blessing and a curse because you're constantly learning. You're able to pick up on stuff and hopefully correct it in some cases. But it's also a curse because once it's released, quite often there's nothing you can do to change it. There's a big metal tool made in China or India and it will remain that way for subsequent releases unless we invest a lot of money. So yes, as you say, sort of similar demographics, I suppose. Do you get asked for any sort of really obscure stuff that there's just no way you'd ever build or or 
as I was saying earlier, Superine Scimitar is one that we'd love to do, but just not commercially viable. Stuff that was potentially prototypes come to mind. So, I don't know, Fairy Delta 2, BAC 221 obviously built off of that. I don't know. One exception might be TSR2. Obviously, we've released models of that, but that's an exception because normally, if you look at TSR2, it was a prototype. Scheme-wise, it only ever wore anti-flash, essentially, or or what appears to be anti-flash, and there was no real variance, so you can't release one model and then two, three years later release a slightly different variant. The reason TSR2 varies is just because of the myth that surrounds it, the what-if, you know, it was a world-beater. So you can use that as an example to sort of build off of, but it's only because of the myth of TSR2 that that was created. But if you look at other aircraft that had a similar sort of story, you can't sell them. You'll get a really good initial run. And then when you try and re-release it, the people that bought it originally aren't going to rush out and buy another because you haven't added anything to that kit and there's no extra value to it. So, yeah, you know, there's there's quite a few subjects we get asked for that we say, yeah, it'd be lovely to do, but... At the end of the day, we've got to make money, which is, you know, being a researcher, I don't really deal with that side too much. And it feels almost grubby talking about money, but that's what pays the bills. That's what allows us to create models and carry on this great hobby. I mean, have you seen the shift towards what people are building these days? Is is there any sort of growth towards different market? I mean, for me, it was always Spitfires growing up, but I I suppose that still rings true. Yes, definitely. There are definitely old favourites and the Spitfire in its many variants is still probably our best-selling model by far everyone knows the spitfire so even enthusiasts and starters they still build spitfires normally you see a difference in what starter model is built to enthusiasts but a spitfire is sort of universal so if you look at our new starter sets that are designed for young people getting into the hobby they're simplified spitfires hawks stuff that's recognizable and uh, you look at some of the massive builds that people do up at 48th scale, 24th in some cases. Spitfires, you know, there's still Spitfires. People love them. There's so much choice when it comes to them. But as I say, the hobby's matured and there is a real demand for some more obscure types. And that's when we get into problems, as we were just discussing, where there's a limited potential for sort of extra releases. The more and more obscure you go, you really put yourself into a corner and you're only appealing to a very limited part of the market. So yeah, Spitfires still reign supreme on the sales, but the hobby's matured and people are buying weirder and weirder aircraft and you you get suggested things and you go, I've never heard of that. And uh, as a researcher, sometimes you're expected to know everything, but what people fail to realise is you're essentially a middleman. You're connecting the dots. You're finding out who's the expert on that, who's the expert on that, and try and bring all their knowledge together. So yeah, it's a challenge that we face, but it's nice when we get a Spitfire, but it still brings up surprises when looking up new Spitfire models. We've probably covered almost every variant. There's a few that we haven't, but you're still learning when you're covering the different marks. You know, there's the 72nd, 9. There's pretty much variants within variants on Spitfires. So it might be called the 9, but you'll have early, late, middle, and this bit won't have that bit. It's very confusing. You have to get your head around it. And again, that's where the mistakes creep in, as we were talking about earlier. Just from talking to you for like a couple of minutes, you can tell you're clearly into your aircraft. I mean, you deal with models, but obviously you have to know about the real thing. Yeah, yes, definitely. You know, for me, most of it is dealing with the real thing. And then it becomes, pass it over to the designer. These are the facts of the real aircraft. And then the designer can take their 
artistic license with it where they need to for modeling purposes putting it together you might have to change slight bits from the actual aircraft because it doesn't work when scaled down to 70 second yeah so i love the real thing i'm trained as a product designer by trade but i just love aircraft and grew up loving aircraft and you're constantly dealing with the real thing which is great you get some unique opportunities visiting different museums airfields sitting in various aircraft and sending them home going look where i am today as i was saying the hobby's matured and as that's happened we've had to deal more and more with the real thing because we now lidar scan the aircraft to get an accurate shape so we 3d scan take a spitfire for example we might take a trip up to biggin hill which is close to us or aircraft restoration company up at duxford and scan one of their spitfires if we needed to and it means that we've got the shape dead on that does come with its issues one of the more recent ones being mosquito we scanned an aircraft and you have to be conscious with museum exhibits they're not always what they appear to be bits have been added or taken away and uh, that's part of my job is is identifying which bits have been added or taken away or are we scanning the right version of this which we don't always do again this is where the mistakes creep in so uh yeah some really exciting visits that we get to do with the real thing and for me it's i don't work a day in my life i just look at planes all day <laughs> i mean talking of the real thing the reason i got in touch with you in the first place was because of your latest acquisition your hunter your ex-date guardian yes yes Lyndon Davies, our CEO, recently purchased a Hawker Hunter F6 that used to be a Gate Guardian outside RF Chivna and then subsequently outside the Humbrol factory in Hull. And it stood there for a number of years. He actually purchased it from Fort Paul, which recently closed down. Purchased it through some sort of auction site. I'm not sure if it was eBay. It might have been some other. But we're constantly checking over his shoulder to make sure his wife didn't see him placing the bids, from what I'm told. <laughs> and it's very generously been denoted to Hornby Hobbies as sort of a ongoing memorial to people that we've lost over the COVID-19 pandemic. So it's coming home to its spiritual home, let's say. It's going to be a, a long-standing memorial for those that we've lost. Just looking at the pictures of it, I mean, it looks like it's in quite a sorry condition at the moment. But so what's the actual overall plan with it? The plan is obviously to strip it back and restore it to a static condition. As you say, it's seen better days and sitting outside for goodness, I can't remember when it was restored. I think I read it was 1990. It was last restored properly. So it sat outside maybe with a bit of TLC here and there since then. So there's a lot of grime to wash off and then we're going to have to strip the paint back and see what we're left with. There's a few bits missing. I know a lot of the cockpit's gone and there's no front wheel. So that's part of my job is uh, calling around different airfields, seeing if they've got a spare Hawker Hunter nose wheel, <laughs> which is a strange job. You have to start the call with, um, this is a strange question. <laughs> and they normally agree, yes, it is. So yeah, the plan is to restore it. And at the moment, it's kept up at RF Manston Museum on the old Manston Airport site, which is currently out of use. So it's kept in a hangar there, just awaiting restoration. So we've teamed up with the museum, who have a few ex-RAF mechanics and paint shop guys that are going to try and work on it best they can. And hopefully it will come out looking brand spanking new. Who knows? <laughs> it was quite amazing following the journey, because obviously when you took it off the pole, you mm. found it already had its undercarriage still in there, which was yeah, a nice yes. little discovery. Yeah, yeah. So as I say, the only bit missing was the nose wheel. The actual legs are all still there. 
and it's standing on its two back legs at the moment and just propped up by pallets at the front whilst we source that wheel. It looks like someone's come along and nicked it. I don't I don't know when and why you would, but yeah, we just need to source that part and then it will be sort of standing on its own legs for the first time in quite a while since, oh goodness, probably since it left RAF Gate Guardian service. So yeah, quite a while. That's the funny thing about our interest is that somebody somewhere will have a nose wheel for that tucked away in a shed exactly. somewhere. Yes. Speaking to a few different people, obviously with Hawker, well, with Hawker Hunters sort of losing their popularity after Shoreham, quite a lot of the civil aircraft are no longer on the circuit. So it's become very limited where you'll be able to find decent spares. There's a few places that still service them. Obviously, there's a couple of military contractors that still use the Hunter. So they are out there and we think we've found someone. So I need to take a drive and pick up a wheel at some point. <laughs> So in terms of this particular hunt, obviously you've researched it, but mm. what sort of um, squadron markings would it go back into? So at the moment, it's a bit undecided, but we're hoping to put it into an authentic scheme, so something at war during its service. And our CEO is Welsh, so he likes the connection with it being fluent RAF Valley with four FTS. So as soon as you mentioned RAF Valley to him, he was, oh, it has to go into that colour straight away. So we'll look at that. It's strange because it ties in with an actual release that we've done. So it's almost a one-to-one hunter. We did a a 148 hunter with a 4FTS scheme as our B scheme, so the second scheme, for this actual aircraft, so XF509. So, you know, it could end up in them colours. Who knows at this point? It would be quite nice to have a full-size airfix kit and say, well, you can paint this on our 48th model. But undecided at the moment, I'll keep you updated as and when I know. (laughs) I find that it tends to be when the CEO wants something, the CEO gets what they want. So I look forward to yes. seeing it in RF Valley colours. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but it was interesting what you were saying, though, because with the popularity of, say, the Hunter on the decline slightly, but as you say, when you start building a model, that will reinvigorate someone's interest in it. So, you know, if the Hunter disappears to the flying circuit, at some point, someone will come back to it, predominantly because of a model that they've built as a kid. Exactly. It's a favourite of a lot of people. The Hunter's just, it's a lovely shape. It's an iconic aircraft and, you know, it served the RAF and the Navy for a long time, sort of, I believe, 40 years, potentially. I mean, it was definitely up there a good number of decades. But I think R1 actually entered service in 57. So, yeah, it's still going strong now. And as you say, it is a lovely shape. As a kid, that was the predominant thing for me, building an airfix. It had to be a nice shape and also had to be buildable. I remember like my worst nightmare was a B-17 with all the gun turrets. And I don't know how many bits mm. I snapped off there and how many... <laughs> How many cockpit sections I got covered in glue? Exactly. And that's something, again, as I was talking about earlier, as the hobbies matured, so as the build quality and the amount of design that goes into them, the quality of the kits has gone up tremendously in the last 10, 20 years. So we're very conscious that talking about starters, kits have got to be buildable. Otherwise, if you give them a, a horrible kit to start with, they're going to put it down halfway through and never come back to the hobby. So you've got to really um, cater to them and their abilities when you first start. So um, starter sets and more simple models are really important and they kind of hook people into the hobby and then they're stuck for life building planes. (laughs) (laughs) Stuck for life quite literally. (laughs) Yes, yeah. (laughs) In terms of sort of enticing new people in, I mean, do you do like sort of builds online to tutorials and things like that? Is that the sort of thing that young people can get into? Yes, definitely. So as we were talking about earlier, 
social media plays a great part in what we do as well as printed media so we've got airfix model weld which do various builds but more and more kids are online and there's plenty of places that you can go and see people building step by step different model kits which is you know really important to see someone else do it and they can make the mistakes first almost so i know on our social media we publish builds but there's so many different model channels and outlets that people can visit to look at people building spectacular models and it's not all 100 pound kits 200 pound kits you know there's quite a few channels that will cover cheaper alternatives stuff more suitable to people getting into the hobby and they can go along watch them and go well that looks easy and then realize that it's not as easy as it may look but it's definitely fun <laughs> i mean certainly i remember a few years ago i bought one of the starter kits for my nephews i bought him I think it was the Hawk, as you said, with the paint that already came with it. So there yes. was no need to even go out and buy anything else. You got your kit and off exactly. you go. Exactly. The expert modeler might not use those paints that come with the starter set. But in terms of getting people into the hobby, you're never going to end up with a an amazing, almost Telford presentable model using them. But you'll get the kids interested and they can get going straight away. There's no waiting. There's no building it and going oh no i need to go get another pot of paint and then waiting another day kids are impatient you need a bit of patience for this hobby but having all the stuff in one place is just so convenient and it helps them get going straight away and as you said that's the beauty of model making because it does teach you patience doesn't it and it does teach you a skill Mm, and it increases your your historic knowledge as well exactly it's not just building as you say it's historic knowledge you're more likely to remember facts that you're reading if you're building a model alongside it because you'll have something that reminds you of what you've read yeah it's a great hobby everyone's got different interests and different things that appeal to them within the hobby for me it's the history and the aircraft the facts around them i'll admit i'm not a great model builder uh (laughs) i'm terrible in fact but i can research you know it's so varied and there's something for everyone and so if somebody wants to find out more, how can they sort of get involved? If you've got a website we can mention or your Instagram page or Facebook or something like that? Yep. So we're on all the main social media channels. So Facebook, just search Airfix. Same with Instagram. And we publish blogs sort of bi-weekly. We do a section called Workbench, which sort of publicizes upcoming releases and sort of the history behind them as well, as well as Aerodrome, which is more your listeners or readers bag, I suppose, which is covering real life events within historic aviation and sort of current aviation so you can find them through the airfix website just go on there and navigate your way through and i'd encourage people to go and get involved with the modeling community go online look at different videos if you don't know where to start there's plenty of starter videos on youtube just search airfix starter and i'm sure you'll come across various videos and yeah you can always read around the hobby before getting into it but i'd encourage people go and buy a kit try it for the first time if you've not and if you built them in the 60s and 70s and haven't built them since why not come and get a kit (laughs) excellent and that's a great place to leave it thanks so much for joining us luke and i'm looking forward to speaking to you again in the future perfect right thank you this has been a podcast from key aero your aviation destination remember visit www.key.aero for more of the same thanks for stopping by And we hope to catch up with you again soon.